and welcome to The Gateway Presents on CJSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. I'm Tina Tai, online editor at The Gateway, the University of Alberta's official student journalism society, run by students for students. Every two weeks, we cover news, opinion, and arts and culture-related topics that are pertinent to students and to campus. We'll be starting off with our news section. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Gateway Presents News segment. My name is Adam Lahatch, the 2019 to 2020 news editor. And for this episode, we're doing something very different. And I'm joined by our online editor and host of the Gateway Presents, Tina Tai. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Tina Tai. I'm the online editor at The Gateway. So I'm the person that starts off The Gateway Presents with hello and welcome back to The Gateway Presents. And I'm also the person that says, and that's all the time we have today at the very end. So um, thank you, Adam, for inviting me on the show. And I'm really excited. Yeah. So the reason why uh, Tina is here is uh, because she is the wizard for all things online uh, for The Gateway. She takes care of all the back end sort of things. She posts all of our articles uh, and makes she does the final copy edits, make sure everything is fine. And she also is in charge of all of our analytics. And so for today's news segment, we're going to be looking at some of the top five uh, most newsworthy articles uh, that were the most popular online on our website. The Gateway does publish content outside of the magazine. You can visit our website every day. It's gtw.ca. We publish content every single day. And so we're going to be specifically focusing in on news stories from this past year as a bit of a recap and have a discussion about them. So uh, I'll turn it over to Tina. Lead us through this. All right. So the first article we have up is, let's see, um, U of A proposes new program-based model for international student tuition. So this one on our Google Analytics uh, has... 7,692 views so far. So that's from January 1st, 2019 to now, today, uh, when we're recording, which is December 17th. Um, So Adam, can you tell us a little bit about the story? Um, So the New Democratic Party uh, introduced legislation called Bill 19. And Bill 19 uh, changed how post-secondary was governed slightly in the province. And Specifically for this article, it talks about how Bill 19 uh, increased predictability for international student tuition. So Bill 19 specifically for international students increased predictability. Um, They would know better what to expect in terms of tuition dollars. So instead of going from instead of having a model where international students were charged per course, now the university is giving international students a guarantee where they will have a bulk figure as to what they can expect for the total program and an annual fee that they will be paying and what that would look like in fall and winter or spring or summer and the amount of credits. So this way, international students have a better sense of what to expect and they will not necessarily have tuition jumps uh, outside of the realm of uh, inflation. Now, the United Conservative Party uh, has continue, has said that they will continue uh, to abide by this uh, paradigm. However, uh, as opposed to just increases to, to uh, inflation, they are allowing universities to increase beyond that. So the meat of the matter is still in play in the sense that international students will still get a guarantee as to this is roughly how much tuition uh, will be throughout the 
full tenure of your time as a student uh, at the University of Alberta or any university in the province. Um, but it can increase uh, depending on what the university sets. So this story was written by Nathan Fung and it was written in June. Um, and it was right when the story was ripe and fresh, uh, right when the Board of Governors actually uh, created a proposal of how this would look like um, and spelled out how the program totals would be communicated uh, and all the specifics uh, of this uh, story were presented and passed at the Board of Governors, which is the highest decision-making body at the University of Alberta. Um, could we talk a little bit about why it was so unpredictable before? Yeah, so basically... International students have been seen as sort of the cash cow of the university. They, domestic students have a lot more regulation in terms of provincial and federal government standards. So when it comes to uh, revenue, generations, revenue generation for universities, it falls, unfortunately, a lot of the time on international students. And a lot of the time there's been stories, even the stories that the Gateways covered about how international students have had to choose between textbooks and food. Uh, and they pay huge amounts of tuition dollars. And it's really because there hasn't been a sense of regulation. And so Bill 19 really changed that. And it allowed for better predictability. And it also just gave international students a better better way of looking at tuition and making sure that they had an understanding of what to expect throughout their entire degree. Because a lot of the times what was happening is international students would come thinking that their tuition would stay the same, but then all of a sudden in their second or third year, the university would decide, oh, you know what, we're just going to hike it up by another 7%. And that was an increase that they didn't budget for or expect. And so now they have a bit more sense of... Um, of a guarantee and also a bit more sense of uh, predictability in terms of what can we expect so that it helps inform their decision making ultimately. Awesome. Thank you so much. So uh, speaking of international student tuition, our next article with just over 10,000 views is actually International Student Starts GoFundMe to Pay Final Semester's Tuition. And this was written by Kate Turner, one of our previous uh, staff reporters. Yeah, so this this is actually a natural segue because I mentioned how sometimes international students had to make that difficult decision of choosing to pay for textbooks or tuition and food. And so this particular case is the story of fifth-year secondary education student uh, Akram Hamami. I hope I said that correctly. I'm a writer, so I never have to pronounce the names. I just make sure they're spelt correctly. Um, but basically, um, Akram is an international student who's studying actually at CSJ. And so because of the unpredictability of tuition, he his tuition increased to a point that he didn't budget for or he didn't expect. And so he had to create a GoFundMe to cover his last semester's tuition, which was over $10,000. And to me, when this story, uh, I remember in the newsroom when this came about, I was the second staff reporter at the time. My heart just broke. I, I couldn't imagine having to go through this where you've literally gone through five years of education here at the U of A and all of a sudden you come to the point where tuition is so expensive you literally might not be able to finish and as an international student that means you have to go home at the time that this was written he raised uh, over 3,300 of its $10,000 goal um, 
And, you know, to me, this is why, this is exactly why Bill 19 came into play. Luckily, you know, um, Akram had a, you know, a positive experience with the GoFundMe because there's a lot of international students who just don't know how to ask for help and kind of suffer through it alone. Whereas, um, you know, Akram was able to mobilize the university community to, to help him out in this situation. So this story was written in April. So just before the guarantee of tuition came into play uh, in June uh, after the Board of Governors passed it. So hopefully um, Akram is doing well. Uh, actually, that's a good idea of a story follow-up is following up and seeing where he's at now. <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud. But um, it was... It's a really sad story because it highlighted, I think, a lot of the struggle of what international students go through. And for us domestic students, we don't necessarily hear about that or we don't necessarily see that. Um, I think what's really interesting is that a lot of domestic students have this perception of international students as like, oh, they're here because they're rich and they can afford it. Um, I know a running joke is kind of like, oh, Chinese international students are just walking around with their uh, Louis Vuitton backpacks or whatever. And people think that, you know, their life is easy. But a lot of the time, it's really not. They're here um, because they really, really want to get a good education here in Canada. Um, What's really interesting is that Akram, sorry I'm not, if I'm not saying that right, uh, he said graduation is the first step to get everything set up and ready. And it kind of just shows you how like important education really is to some people, right? Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I totally see that stereotype all the time. We kind of make jokes like um, always by hub there's so many BMWs or like Lexuses. Like, what's the plural of Lexus? Lexi? Lexi? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's a tangent. But, you know, um, Akram actually, his story is emblematic of, you know, how, why this stereotype is wrong. Because he came to the University of Alberta from Tunisia in December 2013. And he started school here after um, moving from Tunisia because his family was involved in politics. And two of his family friends that he knew very well and personally were actually assassinated because of the views that they held. And he wanted to come to Canada uh, as a refugee, but unfortunately he couldn't because Canada doesn't list Tunisia as a dangerous country. So here is someone who literally has risked it all, both financially and personally, to come to the U of A to just try to change things to try to do something to better himself his family and and the world and i think that a lot of people don't necessarily see that when they hear about international students um all right well speaking of international related conflicts um our third story of the day is uh, offensive comments by U of A lecturer spurs student backlash. And this one was published just around three weeks ago, and it has already gotten 14,000 views. So, um, Adam, would you like to give us a little bit more commentary on this? Yeah, for sure. So this story uh, was one that I actually uh, wrote, um, and it was... Um, what happened is, is we got a tip from the uh, Ukrainian Student Society about. So, um, so someone had actually emailed, I think, the opinion um, email, <laughs> and it, it was just like a regular student here at the U of A, and they said, like, "Hey, here's this uh, lecturer who is making." 
comments that are very offensive and just controversial. And uh, he had actually written like a response to it, but we had heard nothing about it before then. And so we were like, all right, Adam, you got to get on this story, figure out what's going on. And then maybe we could publish like an opinion article on it. Yeah. So the the paradigm we always have at the gateway is if if someone comes to us with a pitch for an opinion article, we always want to make sure that there's a news article because news is where the facts and both sides are presented. So that way um, you're presenting the story in a way that people can decide for themselves how they want to feel about it. And then opinion, which sort of editorializes or comments on a matter, um, can be better informed or people can have already have read the primer, which is like the news article, and then can be more informed and ready to receive an opinion take. So in this situation, um, I was basically tasked on to go on a fact-finding mission and to just find out as much as I could. And so um, we started at Dougal McDonald. So Dougal McDonald is a assistant lecturer at the University of Alberta and the Faculty of Education, specifically in primary education, so elementary education. And on his personal Facebook, he made a post on November 20th, uh, just after midnight, which is kind of an odd time in my opinion, um, but that's great. So he made a comment where he said that the Holodomor is a, quote, lie, end quote, and a perpetuated, quote, myth, end quote. Uh, again, his words, not mine. So he, uh, for those who don't know, the Holodomor is recognized by most Canadian legislatures, the federal government here in Canada, and 16 United Nations member states as a genocide that happened against the Ukrainian people from 1930, uh, from 1923 to 1933. Um, and it was perpetuated by Joseph Stalin uh, and the Soviet Union. And so uh, basically it was a forced... Um, a forced genocide where people were denied access to food. Um, and so millions of people starved to death uh, and were forced to do terrible things in order to just eat, which is a fundamental human right. So Dougal McDonald comes in here in 2019 and says that this is actually a lie and it's actually a myth and that the Holodomor, while it's recognized by Canadian legislatures, it's actually not necessarily the thing that is what people have said it to be. And so he goes on this huge post. It's paragraphs and paragraphs of how the Holodomor is actually a conspiracy. Um, and I don't really want to give him more of a platform than he deserves, but you can we, um, it was actually a bit of a decision that we made whether or not we want to even publish the full comments that he had. And I remember talking with the editor in chief because, um, Part of it was, well, do we want to give him more of a platform than he deserves? But then the other side was, well, we want to make sure that we document these. Because what if he deletes them? What if he takes them down and then says, oh, I didn't actually post this. So we ended up deciding, you know what? Yes, we're going to put a trigger warning on the article and we'll embed the full statement that he made on in the bottom of the article. So we took screenshots so that the facts are there and people can decide what they how they want to see it and how they want to... Uh, talk about this but what was interesting about this story is how quickly he responded i thought that this was going to be a story where um we present the other side's perspectives as like the ukrainian student society's opinion the university of alberta's opinion on the matter but he responded very quickly almost immediately after sending the email and what was very interesting to me as well is that 
rather than being like, oh, you know, like, yes, I made those comments and maybe I regret them or whatever. No, no, no. He doubled down. He was like, no, actually, Adam. Yeah, no, I believe these things. And while my views do not represent those of the University of Alberta, they're totally valid. And this is why I believe them. And so he responded fully to the criticism. And in his statement, he, you know, said that he doesn't debate irrational assertions. And that if anyone wants to seek truth from facts on the matter on the matter at hand, that they can reach him. Um, so he doubled down, and I've continued to reach out to him on following stories for statements. And yeah, he's stayed strong to his beliefs, and it's been an interesting issue. <laughs> yeah, um, this story has really brought up interesting issues of freedom of expression. So uh, our SE president at Kingship Vatnagar, she actually, um, I guess in her role as the SU president, drafted a letter saying that uh, the SU condemns, you know, his statements and they would like for um, the U of A, or no, they would like for him to resign from his position at the U of A. And then the response to that was 43 professors. Um, what was it? 43 uh, U of A professors condemn SU president for a statement regarding Holodomore denying lecture. So... Uh, these professors, they all wrote a letter basically saying that her condemnation of um, his statements is actually infringing upon his freedom of expression. So do we want to talk about that a little bit? I, I think so. I think it's an interesting discussion because the argument that those 43 professors are making is that this was a post he made on his personal page. This is outside the realm of the classroom, outside his role as an assistant lecturer, and even though he has friends on Facebook that are students in his classes, that they should know that this is his personal view and that that um, the statement that President Akeng Shabatnagar made where she told him that either he takes back the statements, walks them back, or resigns because they're out of line is wrong because this is actually his freedom of expression. And I think what this issue has really showcased is as a lecturer, you have a position of power. And so you have to recognize that position of power. And so some of the discussions have been, well, so if he had made these remarks in the classroom, would the U of A have responded differently? Personally, you know, when I see a story like this, I think what we need to look at is we need to look at the fact that this is actually potentially hate speech, that this is potentially comments that um, really don't pay tribute to the history that actually happened. Um, our staff reporter, Kadra Ahmed, attended a rally, a peaceful rally, where the Ukrainian Student Society and a lot of community members came and actually outright demonstrated and said listen like these comments are terrible and they should be taken back there should be repercussions because the whole of the more happened and people survived people lived through it and a lot of people did not make it out and actually there were speakers there who were survivors from the hall of the more and they said so this assistant lecturer who's making these comments whether regardless of if it's in the private domain or in the public sphere you know he made these comments and what is he saying about my experience? How, what does this leave me as a survivor who lived through it, who saw it with my own eyes? And I think it's brought a really interesting discussion to play. And I don't think it's over yet. I think we're going to continue to see this. And I think that, 
you know, this story got a lot of national coverage. The National Post gave us a shout out in their coverage. Um, and a lot of other uh, national and international organizations, even uh, media within Ukraine, picked this story. And I think the U of A is going to be wrestling with this issue for months to come. Yeah, um, the U of A has not taken a fi- an official stance, I would say. Like they basically just said, hey, we don't identify with these remarks. Um, but they didn't say anything about whether or not they're going to terminate him from his position. Uh, which I think a lot of students find problematic because so the phrase that I saw um, a lot of the time was like, you know, if you don't agree with something, it should be met with rigorous academic debate, uh, which is really interesting because his original post didn't really have any academic sources. Um, It was very much just like hate speech. And so like, at what point do you draw the line? Exactly. And I think one of the Uh, one of the pillars of the academy or of university is freedom of expression. When you have the sources and you actually engage in a debate, I don't think this is a debate. I think what, um, and this is strictly, you know, uh, my own opinion, what Dougal McDonald is presenting is, is merely opinion. There is not necessarily any fact. And he says that he's done research. He says he has academic material. But even after asking for that, and even after asking to see it and uh, to for him to kind of phrase things and to showcase, you know, all that research that he's done, he really hasn't presented any of that. And so I think for me, academic freedom is all about making sure that you have a debate that's respectful and showcases the labors of your research. And so if there were studies, you know, then yeah, let's engage in this debate. But I haven't seen anything of that late, uh, lately. And so until I see something, uh, to me, this is possibly hate speech. So the U of A so far has said that they, uh, obviously these comments do not reflect those of the University of Alberta. Um, They haven't outright, like you mentioned earlier, said whether they agree with them or not, but they've said that as a response to this issue, they're committing to funding more Holodomor awareness initiatives. They're going to continue to support uh, the great work that the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies, which is hosted here at the U of A, um, they're going to continue to support those research programs. They're going to actually have more events on campus. They're going to launch a website. They're going to do all these awareness tools to bring about more understanding of the Hall de Moore, but they haven't done anything about the actual issue at hand. And so I think what's going to be interesting is seeing the Ukrainian student society's next steps, you know, um, because the U of A just revealed that last week. So really looking at looking into the future, I, I, I would say that the this is not a dead issue. There's going to be a lot more debate. There's going to be a lot more discussion. And I think students are going to continue to uh, put pressure on the university to do more than just awareness, because I think awareness is important. And I think, you know, the first time I heard of the whole Demore was in uh, junior high in, in, in social studies classes, which I think is kind of late. Um, because a lot of the times people have learned about the Holocaust already. Um, I think that, you know, awareness is important because that's the first step towards building understanding. But in terms of an institution that's so serious about Ukrainian studies and Ukrainian research. Um, and another thing that kind of flabbergasts me is that the university houses one of the largest archives 
of materials from Holodomor survivors. This university is clearly engaged in Holodomor research and clearly whether they say it explicitly or not has a stance on whether or not the Holodomor exists. But yet they haven't officially said that. And I think that's what's very interesting. And I think that's exactly why we're going to continue to see this issue come up. Well, thank you. Um, Next article. This one (laughs) was written back in April of 2019. And uh, it was written by Nathan Fung, our previous news editor. And it's titled, Only One Candidate Showed Up to the Provincial Election Forum at the U of A. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) when you read the headline, I was like, oh, what a simpler time that was. (laughs) Yeah, so Nathan Fung, uh, the previous uh, news editor uh, and mentor of mine, I wrote this article and it was a recap of a campus forum um, that happened during the provincial election uh, of 2019, where uh, Marlon Schmidt, a New Democratic Party candidate for the riding that the University of Alberta is home to, Edmonton Gold Bar, uh, he was the only candidate who showed up. And so, you know, pictures say a thousand words. And uh, Nathan took a really great photo of him sitting at the podium for this debate that was supposed to be alone. There's empty mics, there's water bottles, everything is set for everyone, but it's just him and him alone. And I think it's a very powerful photo. So this election forum really didn't become a forum. It just became a fireside chat and an opportunity for students to ask questions about um, the new Democratic Party's vision for Alberta. Um, So the Alberta Party candidate uh, for the riding uh, was supposed to appear, um, but was unable to do so. Um, And the Conservative, or sorry, the United Conservative Party, the UCP candidate, uh, was also invited numerous times, according to the Students' Union External Advocacy Advisor, um, but was unable to make it as well. Um, Obviously, though, it is still unfortunate that such a major event uh, the University of Alberta is home to students who live across the province, not just in Edmonton Gold Bar. Um, so this is a major event for all political parties, and it happens pretty much every election. It's interesting that neither party was able to find a candidate from another riding to come in and you know just allow the party to be somewhat represented. Um, you know, it was interesting because it really showed to students who had a platform that engaged post-secondary the most, and it also showed who cares about post-secondary the most. Um, To me, this story is just really sad because it kind of shows how alienated post-secondary students are from politics. Um, I have family friends who are like high school students, right? And some of the discourse I'm seeing these days is like, oh, we're uh, students. Our job should just be to like shut up, sit down and get an education. But in my mind, I'm thinking like, you know, staying informed about politics is part of education, right? If you're going to go on and become like an actual citizen, uh, you should know about what's going on in whether it's just your province or your country um, or like the entire world and just like politics is unfortunately inevitable uh, 
you're going to grow up and you're going to get involved in politics. That's just kind of how it is. Um, and But anyway, my point was, like, it's just really sad to see how these parties don't really care that much about, you know, getting the post-secondary students informed. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you had to say there. And one of the stories we wrote as well uh, during the election period was what are the post-secondary platforms specifically for each party? And even if you take a look at that story, um, you can tell, you, you get a pretty clear idea of how um, alienated post-secondary students actually are. Not all of the parties treated post-secondary equally. Not all of the parties um, included um, concrete asks or concrete policy that they would enact. A lot of the parties had sort of inspirational statements or visionary ideas of what post-secondary should look like. Um, and one of the things actually that really stands in stark contrast uh, to me was in 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 the UCP's post-secondary platform, uh, they said they had four goals. One was to strengthen intellectual property laws. Um, so that would encourage more commercialization of research, which I think is interesting because um, sometimes research is not meant to be commercialized. Sometimes research is meant to answer a question. Their second uh, platform point was requiring all universities to develop a freedom of expression statement, which the University of Alberta just did last week. And the third one was that they would have labor market outcomes. And that's a quote. Um as opposed to di uh, giving universities amounts of money through grants based on historical data, they wanted to uh, introduce performance matrix so that qualifiers that they deem important, like um, graduation rates, completion rates, or how applicable that job is to the Alberta economy, those types of programming would receive more as opposed to other institutions. And we're seeing that come to the forefront now, and it will continue to do so in the spring budget. And the fourth one was um, increasing the amount of international students so that uh, they, again, could act as cash cows. So to me, of those four promises, what's interesting is that none of them, first of all, directly related to domestic students, and none of them actually did anything to increase affordability of post-secondary and now we're seeing that in the forefront and so it's really sad to see that you know had a UCP candidate come to the forum and actually talked about their post-secondary ideas or whatnot would that have changed people's mentalities towards the party I don't know obviously I don't uh, you know that's all speculative but it's just unfortunate that they didn't even come to engage or even come to explain because better IP laws to inspire commercialization of research from all the discussions I've had with university administrators or student politicians on campus. That really was never an issue. That was never something they asked for. That was not something they wanted. And so for them to even embellish and explain why is this something that they're so interested in would have been great. Um, and unfortunately that did not happen. So, uh, and that's what this, uh, the story that Nathan wrote captured. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of politics and post-secondary, our top article of the year uh, was written by Adam in October. Um, 
It was titled Breaking Budget 2019's Effect on Post-Secondary in Alberta. So <laughs> Adam, Kadra and I, Kadra uh, is her staff reporter. Uh, we were actually in the media room on budget day and uh, Adam was just beside me like furiously typing away, trying to capture all of the details that budget 2019 um, has on post-secondary. And it was just like a really cool day to be a part of. I don't know. That's kind of nerdy. Um, Adam, do you want to like talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So um, basically the, the article itself talks all about the technical details of budget 2019's effect on post-secondary and university institutions in the province and how students would be directly impacted. So the story behind this story is that basically how it works on budget day is you come in at around seven in the morning, you turn in your cell phone, you basically sign your life away on this form called an embargo, basically where you agree, I will not leak any information that I receive. All information that I receive is privileged and confidential until 3 p.m. when it's tabled in the legislature and it becomes public domain. Um, and so basically you are entrusted with all these documents, hundreds of pages of documents, might I add. Um, and basically you have the privilege of seeing them before everyone else so that you can formulate stories so you can ask questions and you can start to see what the budget looks like so that when the budget is actually officially released, the media is already informed and ready to ask politicians further questions and present that information to Albertans so that um, they, uh, so that the media is ready, so that Albertans are ready uh, as well. So, yeah, we showed up very early in the morning. Again, begrudgingly handed over our cell phones. There was no Wi-Fi, no nothing. Not to be a complete like millennial yes, or anything, yes. but just you know, not having your phone there and not having any Wi-Fi to fact check things. Yes. That was torture. Oh, for sure. Because the worst thing is, is when you're in that room. The biggest thought on your mind is, well, how does this compare to last year's budget? Oh, I wish I could check that, but I can't. <laughs> so um, basically what happens is, is we, as soon as we signed the embargo agreement, we were ushered into a room that's actually locked. You're not allowed to leave. There's armed Alberta sheriffs that monitor um, you and make sure you're not leaking anything and whatnot. Um, so... What happens is, is after you, you sit down, you get access to these documents, you literally look through them and it's a mad, uh, you have two hours to look through them and then you have a press conference. So the first two hours of the day was spent just looking through all the documents, Tina, myself and Kadra. This article was really a team effort because you're given hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents. And in fact, we actually missed something. We actually had to update the original article um, about an hour after it was released because we missed the fact that step was eliminated. It, we, it was not brought to our attention. Part of the strategy on the government side is you, they want to overwhelm journalists with hundreds of pages of documents. They don't have time to go through everything. So only the big things are covered. And luckily, we did eventually find out that step was canceled. So anyways, we were working as a team, going through everything, finding the most noteworthy things and trying to formulate questions so that when this press conference came, um, we were able to ask questions to the deputy ministers who are the policy experts. These guys are and girls are paid the big bucks to know the insides and outs of policy. 
And so we do that. And then afterwards, there's technical briefings throughout the day where you get more uh, specific information, more numbers. How does this work? How does this compare to the last budget, uh, to the previous government's approach? And you get explanations as to why um, these are happening. And then basically after lunch, you're left alone. You have the opportunity to ask more questions, but you draft the story. And so from 1 till about 2.30... I was sitting there typing away, drafting. I was asking Tina and Kadra, does this make sense? Is this too complicated? And the story went through so many different drafts. But finally, at three o'clock, as soon as the embargo was lifted and the budget was tabled in the house, we published within minutes and we were out there. We had the story up. um, And that's exactly why, you know, budget day happens the way it does. But yeah, that's kind of the story behind the story. I think what what's interesting to me about Budget Day is you really get to see how government works. Mm-hmm. Um, government, you know, oftentimes in the media, all you see are the politicians sitting in the legislature, question period and whatnot. And that's really only half of it. The other half is actually the policy wonks, um, the people who are the experts, the economists, um, the career bureaucrats who put all of these numbers together, who create the presentations, who prep the politicians. The politicians are merely the ones who come in and guide the direction and then the bureaucrats actually execute. And so what was very interesting was to meet the deputy ministers of advanced education and to have frank conversations with them about, well, you know, why is this happening? What? Why is this a priority? Or why is this funding being cut? And sometimes getting answers and sometimes getting pivots or sometimes not getting an answer and then having to work with that in terms of the story. And so in this breaking news article, we just presented all the facts. So it was, boom, this is cut. Boom, this tax credit gone. This is how much tuition can increase. These are intergenerational impacts. This budget, while it is called Budget 2019, it's going to impact post-secondary for the long run. Um, You know, one of the biggest cuts the University of Alberta is facing is its $35 million infrastructure maintenance program uh, grant uh, went from $35 million to $0. And we have, while the UCP has said publicly, this is coming back, don't worry, we don't know for sure if it's actually coming back. And that's huge because the University of Alberta is already facing almost $500 million in deferred maintenance. Maintenance that has been put off because A, the money has not been there or because it hasn't been able to be fixed because of the lack of political will or uh, university leadership, or et cetera, et cetera. So there's already $500 billion, or correction, $500 million worth of deferred maintenance. Now you're taking away all money that is given by the government to fix that. Well, now more maintenance is going to be have to put off. More maintenance is not going to happen. Already, the University of Alberta had to cut $20 million of construction and deferred maintenance contracts. So, you know, it's these are real issues and they're going to impact not just post-secondary students, but really the entire province because every taxpayer buys into the university system here in Alberta. Well, unfortunately, um, it's a capitalist society. <laughs> it always comes back to that somehow. Well, that's all the articles we have for today. Uh, thank you for inviting me on your show, Adam, or your segment. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Promotion. <laughs>
No, thanks for having me, Tina. And thanks for coming as well. I really appreciate it. And for sharing some of that crazy wizardry analytics background. Um, but yes, thank you so much to everyone for tuning in. I hope that this recap of the year gave you a sense of where 2019 uh, was as a year at the University of Alberta and some of the stories that the Gateway covered. So thank you very much for listening uh, to this segment. And we look forward to seeing you in the new year.